Hi, I'm Ron Coleman, a partner in the Dillon Law Group, social media legend and free speech enthusiast. When I started the Coleman Nation podcast in the spring of 2021, its focus was on free expression and censorship on the internet. But as important as that subject is to me, which is very important, I felt hemmed in in the podcast. I wanted to spend more time talking to the interesting people I've met in my legal and free speech work without feeling a need to have them all make the same point. So I culminated the first series of the podcast and have started the second series. I hope you'll enjoy these conversations as much as I have recording them. Hey, culminators. Welcome to the show. Tyler Boyer. It is Boyer, right? I said it right. I, yeah. Right. You know, you have one of those names you read all the time. It looks like Boyer. You say it like it's spelled. Ron Coleman with Tyler Boyer. Tyler is in the middle of everything. When we first talked, it, it involved um, a particular political fight that there's no sense in talking about now. Um, but there's a lot going on. He is a seventh generation Arizonan. So you can guess what fight that was. Uh, he's a, a member of the, of the Republican National Committee, even though, as you can tell from looking at him, he's only 14. And he is the chief operating officer for Turning Point Action. And he could tell us what Turning Point Action is. But as much as I have encouraged him to, you know, to pitch the incredible, incredible stuff that he and his group are doing, he is interested in talking big, big picture. And it is, you know, when you can talk big picture with someone who knows what he's talking about, you talk big picture. So <laughs> Tyler, welcome to the show. Thanks for coming on. Ron, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Our pleasure. Uh, I think what's going on? Is there any good news? It always feels like when you're a Republican that they're outsmarting us, they're surrounding us, they're 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 pulling a fast one on us. Mm -hmm. Tell me something good. Well, one of my favorite quotes is is you know the one good part about being surrounded is no matter which direction you shoot and you hit somebody. So, <laughs> uh, so that's. <laughs> That's the good news, uh, you know, to start, which is, you know, there's so much up from here. And, you know, we were in the midst of this battle. You know, I serve by day. I'm the chief operating officer for Turning Point Action. Formerly, I was, you know, built all the, the systems and, and things like that, programming at Turning Point USA. And so we launched uh, effectively just about three years ago, Turning Point Action, um, and really eased into the C4 world. During 2020, uh, we didn't do anything massive, like big outside spending. We did some, uh, but we we ran basically what was at the time Students for Trump. And so we started building what was the foundation of our C4. And really ahead of 2022, was we, we leaned in. It was about a year ago when we jumped in and said, hey, there's, you know, there's not enough happening, you know, in the C4 space. And, you know, again, when you talk about big picture about what the left's doing, and how we have to combat it. And we, we can talk a little bit more in depth about that. We just knew that we had to make a significant uh, time investment on the personal side, and then also financially start moving in that direction. Because we've been blessed in our, our C3 with Turning Point USA, where we're now one of the largest C3s you know, in the United States on the conservative Explain side. the difference to the non-lawyers among us, not among us, but who might be listening, and you're not a lawyer, but but this is space that you work in between a, a C3 and a C4. 
Yeah, and, and this is good because I think this is the baseline for what I think our conversation should be is, um, you know, 501c3s and 501c4s are is the nonprofit world generically that, that most Americans see, but they don't realize they're seeing. So every time that you see a charity, for the most part, including a lot of a lot of church related organizations, uh, a lot of organizations that do a lot of great things like your, you know, you know, American Heart Associations and your, uh, you know, giving back to kids, Cars for Kids, which is a big one that people know, oh. um, and, and all these Former other client of mine and uh, yeah. a, a board that I sat on as well for many years. That big, big, big deal. You know, you hear a lot of a lot of commercials and I've given a car. So <laughs> um, and, you know, so many different organizations like that, um, you know, that also includes many that are pseudo in the political space, which the left has really dominated, which they, they've built this soft money infrastructure, which is basically money that um, can be easily moved and, you know, provide tax deductions for, for those who contribute it. Um, again, once like, like everybody knows in the charity space. And so uh, the left has really maximized this and the right really has dropped the ball probably for the, the last 20, 30 years on really building core infrastructure around charities and C3s and C4s, which again, can do wonderful things like what we're doing at Turning Point USA, which is, you know, educating young people on the principles that, that we hold near and dear to our hearts of, of limited government and, and freedom. And so uh, the left has done the same thing with C3s and C4s, but obviously trying to undo America with new thinking and anti-constitutionalist pr principles and and things of that nature to you know better America. And this is where a lot of the social justice programming has come in is through the the 501c3 and c4 network. The big difference between c3s and c4s is a 501c3 is nonpartisan, is exclusively can only be focused on things that are not partisan, meaning they can't be Republican or Democrat. Supposedly, or, I mean. Or, we we comply with the law, but we know that there are plenty of C3s that that don't. Yeah. That don't and that the IRS couldn't care less. Yeah, on the left in, in particular. And but these groups are supposed to be nonpartisan. They're supposed to not support candidates. Um, and then C4s for just slightly less than half the time can do that. So a 501c4 uh can fulfill that educational type mission, uh, that community improvement mission for slightly more than half the time. The other half of the time they can do politics and so they can actually influence elections uh support specific candidates support specific parties and so that's part of the reason why uh turning point usa which is nonpartisan, you know some of our leadership team you know including myself uh have moved over to significantly focus on the c4 side uh to, to help improve that that network especially in the conservative movement so uh that's You're where we're at do you have any understanding of why it took us so long to, I can understand that they thought of it first or we're old fashioned, but a generation, how did it take 30 years to figure out that we are surrounded? And we're not even really there yet because we're kind of at the tip of the spear here about this topic. But I mean, look, there's been C4s that have existed to a lesser extent, you know, you have your heritage action. So you have your heritage foundation, 
the C4 component of heritage is heritage action. A lot of these are DC based, which I think is part of the beltway problem that is, has existed within the Republican party. But like, let, look, let's, let's take a step back. And if we really want to dive into it, I'll give you the, the short couple minute explanation of what I think based off of my research and the history of what happened. Yeah, so, no, no, please do. So, I mean, basically if you go, drill back to citizens United and when that happened, if you remember, you know, the blood curdling screams from the left that, you know, when that happened, that they were never going to ever win an election again because the right had this lock, this tight grip around dark money and this term dark money, this is where it was born. Yeah, and then the left was screaming and screaming and screaming. If we if we let this happen, if this happens, if we don't, you know, drill down on this, then we're never going to win the states that we need to win. And ultimately, they just finally just decided, you know what? We have to if if that's the law of the land, then we have to play by the rules of the of, of the land, and let's just go find our own donors that are equally as big, if not bigger. And that's where really the the you know the the spreading of the wings of George Soros came into play, and and characters like that who are starting to have a much bigger impact that said, hey, we'll do this, but we want to do it better than how the right does it because what the right does is they just run you know. Uh, you know, doubling effort or a duplicative effort in most cases within this this pack space, we we're really interested in and in focusing on you know a you know smart people that come out of the Clinton administration that some you know ended up being born out of the Obama administration that can help basically manage all that capital in a more appropriate way, and so that's where you got some really intelligent individuals that came out of. Again, formerly the the Clinton administration that were running big C4s going, hey, guys, I run this big C4. It's like one of the only ones, you know, we need to do a lot more of this. If we do this, then we can basically pull the part, the, the power away from the party and, and start doing this. And, and thus is where Arabella Advisors was essentially created and saying, we're going to create a money management firm that's going to help family foundations get set up so that we can more smartly contribute money in, in a smarter way to C3s and C4s. And then simultaneous to this, all the way over in Colorado, for those of us that have read the Colorado Blueprint, I highly recommend reading it. But you had your Jared Polises and those groups of, you know, really radical Democrats that were saying, you know, the Democrat Party is not the way to be successful because the Democrat Party, like the Republican Party, turns over effectively every 18 months. And so you can't run a business. Imagine running a business, Ron, where you had to fire everybody every 18 months. It just is impossible. And so they realized this in Colorado and they said, you know, there's no way that George W. Bush should have won this state again. And so we're never going to let it happen again. We're never going to allow, you know, the right to win Colorado ever again. And this is how we're going to do it. We're going to we're going to put the, the Colorado Democrat Party in the corner and we're going to create all the mechanisms that are necessary to be created through a C4 infrastructure uh, that's going to be more impactful and more effective. And thus, Colorado Democracy Alliance was born and CODA turned into Democracy Alliance, which that was implemented nationwide as the practicum. And so now today you have states like Michigan and Florida that were impacted by this and Wisconsin, now Arizona and Georgia. Whereas they, it's a simple math equation of figuring out where are the 270 electoral college votes they need to win, 
and then implementing basically the exact same soft money C3 and C4 strategy across these states, just as Democracy Alliance and Arabella Advisors uh, has done so effectively. So they just so they did it. They did. They saw what the right had achieved with so-called dark money, and said we we can do it better. Yep. And that and 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 we also have we have all this talent. We have this bench of people who are you know, especially you know during the Bush years, uh, looking for looking for political ways to to do things. And why should we depend on party party structures when those are so subject to change? Yep. And it's not just subject to change, but um, also just ineffective, right? Because what they realize, which is what we're realizing, we've realized over the last two election cycles now in the Republican Party, is that the the DNC, what they realized was the DNC is a farce that um, in most cases, they are not gonna have their ducks in a row. And so part of what they did was they said, you know, we are so far behind the right on dark money and, and then also data as the centralized brain to everything. And, you know, I just got done talking to a, a alum, I won't say his name because I didn't say I was gonna go out and promote our private conversation, but, you know, he's, he's not definitely not aligned with me politically he's a establishment you know very you know what i would consider you know a very establishment very you know rhino-y probably type type of a you know a type of a personality but you know we had a very you know open conversation which was that you know the right is basically now so far behind the left because what the left figured out again effectively 20 years ago after they they adopted the mentality of like we just have to do this better than the right they they got control of their data and so what they did was they ultimately created a centralized brain that became open source and what the left did which the right is so funny you have guys like jared polis who are out you know outright communists you know they legitimately like he would call himself a self-avowed socialist and uh, you know, he ended up becoming governor, which, you know, that never would have happened without their infrastructure bill. But they basically looked at this and they said, we're going to create a free market type of a, a program. We're going to create a shark tank. So we're going to open up all the data and then invite in all these smart minds that want to create things that are going to make our data distribution better and easier and faster. And, you know, the, the great grandchild of that process ended up being Eric, which is the, the system that they share effectively all their data in 30 plus states now uh, instantaneously with leftist organizations. So it's really, a, it's really interesting to study this. Um, it's, a, it's unbelievable how few people know what has happened. And, you know, like the art of war, you really can't know your, you can't win any battles without knowing yourself and knowing your enemy. And so you really have to, you have to study that is my belief. How did you get yourself involved in, in this, you know, kind of enterprise? Yeah. So my story is, is, you know, I won't bore you with my story, but. Oh, we actually know that the subtitle of the, of the podcast is interesting people. 
because I believe in fact that stories like yours are not boring. Uh, <laughs> most people are quite fascinated by extraordinary people. And you've had, I, I, I won't embarrass you by calling you an extraordinary person. I'll just say that you, you have a, an, an extraordinarily cool job. You well, will agree with me about that. We have extraordinary work yet to do. So I'll, I'll, I'll <laughs> reserve that. I'll All reserve right. that if we are able to save the country from the depths of okay, it's a deal, like you said, of of what we're up against. But yeah, no, I appreciate that. I mean, my quick, so, the quick the quick version of my story is this: is I'm actually from Arizona. I'm a seventh generation Arizona, as you mentioned. Um, so my family's been here forever. Uh, never expected Arizona to turn into the swing state that it effectively is today. And I got involved um, about you know, a baker's dozen years ago here, about 12, 13 years ago, somewhere in there. And I showed up to college Republicans at Arizona State University, which is the largest ground campus in America, you know, 80,000 kids. I showed up, and this was right in the middle of the Tea Party, the beginnings of the Tea Party Revolution. And I show up and there's 10 kids at the college Republicans chapter, 10. And there's 80,000 kids at ASU. And I and, I, and so it's a pretty familiar story, actually. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think a lot of us have that have been involved long enough are used to showing up to clubs. But I was surprised because I was like, I just knew I I had actually lived. I speak fluent Russian. I'm 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 Mormon. I'm LDS, which you know is a big population here in Arizona. And uh, and I, I showed up just knowing I had to do I had to get involved because I didn't want my country to look anything like Russia. Like I, I knew that it was just kind of unique, given the circumstances where we are today with Russia and, and Ukraine and everything else. But I, I showed up and and I was shocked. I honestly was shocked and I was horrified. And you know, I felt a call to action to show up and keep showing up. And they're like, "You should be president." And so basically, ran for president. Like the next chapter meeting, you know, within weeks, they basically made me vice president and then president. And so I'd taken over what became effectively the largest college Republican chapter in the country. And we went from 10 kids engaged to about 3000 the next year. And, and, we, and we held, we held massive events. And that is the best, the best use of, of, of a back doorway of saying I built the chapter from 10 to 2000 what was it 3000 2000 yes three, th about 3000 kids engaged. i took over what became <laughs> as if there's no cause and effect i'm sure you had i'm sure you had help but obviously but that's an that's an, a phenomenal how how on earth do you do that on a, on a college campus well you know uh, that's where I, that was kind of the beginnings of me learning like first off there was no help there were no organizations that helped me and I, I begged for it. So I went to, I won't name names of what organizations existed, but that didn't help me, but certainly not the college Republican national committee, uh, you know, who were like, Oh, we didn't even know you existed and we're doing all these big things. But uh, you know, started doing a lot of other things. And part of that process, I just got more entrenched and more involved and realized that we had this big deal. And this is where something that you may have some interaction with was, I became an, I, I started interacting with the public interest research group who were trying to establish themselves on all these college campuses through automatic dues that were being paid through tuition fees. And so no one knows really this whole story. And this is boring to most people who have no interest in this, but the public interest oh, research. Oh, group, no, this, this is a big deal. And, and anyone who's who's been even even a spectator in in, in conservative politics over the last decades has to be aware of, of 
should be aware of, of this issue. So, so this was really my spark. So the public interest research group thing really like set me off because I was running this big college Republican chapter. Nobody knew I existed. I had no help from any organizations that were existing, you know, interacted a little bit with young Americans for Liberty, which were kind of gaining steam during the Ron Paul era during that time. Uh, but you know, for the most part, nobody, nobody really helped. And they were trying to institute basically a very simple, like $5 fee of every student. Well, in Arizona, that's hundreds of thousands of students. We're talking about millions of dollars that were going to effectively an organization that hates Republicans, that hates conservatives. And they were trying to pass at the time, you know, a bunch of different things, including boycott, divestment, sanctions type stuff and, uh, you know, BDS type stuff against the oil and gas community, like all, all sorts of crazy, like environmentalism, environmentalism stuff. So obviously just being, you know, feeling a sense of leadership, you know, I took a, a pretty big stand against that. And in the midst of all of that, I was like, you know what, we've got to run, you know, and with a couple of other guys, we're like, we've got to run student body president candidates, all these ASU campuses. And so there's four ASU campuses. You know, if you win three of them, you basically control all of ASU with the student government. And so we ran our college Republican chapter presidents at every campus, including myself. And I started running for student body president at ASU, which I hadn't no business running because like, I wasn't in Greek life, you know, I was, a, I was a little bit older. I was a few years older. I, you know, I was already married at that point and, but had no chance in beating the Greek life candidate. But, you know, in that process, because I did that, I get a phone call from the governor and the governor at that time was Jan Brewer. And she calls me and she says, Hey, I know you're doing big things. I want you to come down and talk to me. And so like, oh, okay. I was a little bit nervous because I, you know, getting a call directly from the governor is a little weird. So I go down to our office and I meet with them. They're like, we want to appoint you to the board of regents. And in Arizona, the board of regents is a really progressive board. It's only 10 members, uh, two are students, but they have full voting privileges. And it's for all three universities and the state universities in Arizona. So it's a multi-billion dollar enterprise and literally you know, a kid has a, a, a one-tenth of the vote uh, of the board. And so um, I accepted. I, I dropped out of the student body president race. We ended up winning the other three campuses uh, with student with, with college Republicans. I became the student regent. And when I was the student regent, I basically uh, put the kibosh on all of the, the outside fees for PERG, and other ones there was a at the time an arizona students association fee which is the same thing basically the same thing and so i became like public enemy number one to the left because we we effectively ended what was one of the largest publicly funded unions in the state of arizona Amazing. because we we yeah i put that on the agenda as a region so um you know it wasn't very long after that that governor brewer after sticking her finger in obama's face um, agreed to Medicaid expansion in Arizona in order to make Obamacare work. And so she came to the Board of Regents when I was a student regent. And again, I was getting no help from the outside. There was no youth organizations helping me, nothing. And uh, they, they came to us and they said, we want you to support Medicaid expansion. And I, I said, oh, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> I'm not, I'm not going to support Obamacare, you know, through a Medicaid expansion here in Arizona. I think that's silly. No, no one in the party supports it. And so uh, it, long story short, but this is where I, 
again, like second tier for me was I ended up in a room with, with governor Brewer and they pulled me into like a broom closet with her before the meeting when they were going to vote on the, <laughs> and they're like, I know you're going to not going to let me down. I know you're going to support this. I know you don't want your political career to end today. And, uh, and I said, no, governor Brewer, I'm, I'm going to 100% vote against you on this. I don't care. I'll, I'll be the only one. It's it's fine. I'll, all these other appointees of yours, you know, don't have the intestinal fortitude to do it, but you know, I do. And so I did. And that like sent, you know, you know, people were like, Whoa, what's going on here. And out of that came, you know, a lot of people were like, you need to get more involved with the party. You need to do more. And my big thing that I was bothered by was there were no organizations there to support me. There was nothing and it wasn't just me. The Tea Party was, you know, off the ground and all these you know, older folks had no support by anybody for the most part. There just was no infrastructure to support any of that. And had there been, you know, we could have captured probably a lot more wins, a lot more W's on the board for the conservative movement had that been built. And so that's where, you know, I kind of just was like, hey, I got to do this. And yeah, long story short was people were like, you need to meet this kid in Illinois. He's starting something. And, and that's when I was introduced to Charlie Kirk, who was trying to do basically the same thing. So we connected and I was like, I want to do this. He's like, I'm already kind of doing this. And, you know, he spoke like an 80 year old, you know, <laughs> body, 19 year old body. And so I basically quit my job. I luckily I was in a financial position to do that. And, you know, took a $20,000 a year job. Yeah, basically going full time and and helping build Turning Point with Charlie. So that's that was the short story, long short story. So, but it's but 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 it, it's really it, it it's an important you know origin story you know of of, of, our, of our superheroes because people wonder people wonder how you know where this comes from and they have the impression that it starts out that somebody with a billion dollars or a hundred million dollars wants to build this organization, wants to spend the money, wants to build the organization and then recruits guys like you. And it's, it, it's the opposite. You, this is a genuine grassroots movement that you then had to go out and raise funds to support. Yeah. I mean, the funny part about the whole thing is that, you know, when I joined Charlie, I mean, I think turning point, uh, it was like a year and a half after Charlie had effectively started Turning Point. I think in the first year they raised like, yeah, like tens of thousands of dollars, like like twenty, thirty thousand dollars. I I literally fit, I I, I, don't I believe it was a hundred thousand dollars. In year two, I think it was three hundred thousand. So I basically, when I met Charlie, you know, and he had done all that fundraising in Illinois. Um, Bruce Rauner at the time was running for governor, which you know was Republican trying to win back Illinois. Unfortunately, Bruce Renner turned out to be a huge disappointment, but um, that was the time period that that was happening. And so Turning Point was basically, it was just an, uh, an Illinois centered, you know, organization. So it was just by luck, by, you know, God's hand that I, I was somehow introduced to Charlie in any kind of way, mostly because as I brought up, I'd been badgering these other organizations like, hey, like, is anyone, can anyone help me? Can anyone do anything? And one of the organizations, again, I won't, I won't throw out which one it was, but one of the organizations was like, yeah, we really can't help you, but there's a kid with no money in Illinois who, you know, is trying to do something like you are, because we were saying the same thing, which was that the right needs its own community activists as community organizers. And, uh, and so that's where, really Charlie and I both synced up 
And yeah, we had no money. We had nothing. You know, I quit my job. I quit everything to effectively do this. I, I put on, I, I was going to go to law school. Um, you know, I was planning on doing that. I decided not to go to law school in order to pursue this. And uh, it's like, sounds like a good call. Well, you know, save me some bills sort of, but I mean, I'll tell you it was, yeah, it was a huge risk, but like you said, there was nothing, it wasn't like, this was like the Cokes, you know, like here's, you know, a billion dollars start, here's, here's $5 million start this, you know, there was nothing. And it was building the programming, basically identifying all the problems that were within the movement, particularly in the youth space, but across the movement really as a whole and saying, we're going to build this and deliver it to donors. And if donors want to fund it because they see the product that we're trying to build that's missing, then great. Um, and that's the way that we've operated basically since day one. And you were able to figure figure the, figure out, you know, like you say, oh, we needed to identify these problems and then, you know, find ways to solve them. Yep. Yeah, and which just, is the right way to go about it. Unfortunately- but My point is you didn't have any special training or education that qualified quote qualified you to do that you just said no one else is doing it i'm gonna throw myself at it and hopefully we figure out the answer it was a series of a lot a lot of walking like pioneers towards large canyons and <laughs> or large rivers and figuring out how you're going to cross them so one at a time. And, you know, it's a lot of that bridge building and raft building, you know, so to speak, you know, it takes a lot of effort and there's a lot of failure along the way, like any, any innovation within the space. Um, but yeah, it's, it, it, we, we didn't have time to kill because, you know, obviously the country at the time was not in a good place during the Obama years. And, uh, you know, I really think that a lot of what we did, uh, will go un, un, unrecognized for kind of what the setup was for what happened with Trump. But, you know, there's, there was a lot of, a lot of changes that happened in that time period between 2012 and 2016 that we were really fortunate to be part of because we were building things that had never been built before. Now what? Well, I mean, I'll kind of take a step back. I mean, this is, so this has been the the, pro, the progress model here, which is that when we recognized, or I guess throughout that process, we recognized there weren't a lot of organizations like us, like you mentioned. Um, they're just there's not it, there's not a lot of incentive to go out starting C threes and C fours, and the success ratio is very low. Uh, just like any business, you know, there's not a lot of people who break through. But now that I realize, I, I mean, now I know why, because. Um, first off, there's not a lot of innovation in the space, but number two, there's not a lot of help. You know, like I said, I was searching for help as a young guy and nobody really offered it. I had to learn how to build my own bridges and build my own rafts across these large, you know, canyons and rivers. And so, you know, it's hard to do that without capital, but you know, God finds a way, you know, I'm a big believer that it's a big God thing that, that led us to where we are, you know, as a, as a believer, but because there, certainly it was not based off our own intellect and abilities and talents. But, um, you know, I think, I think, again, if you're a believer, you believe that, you know, God finds a way to use your talents. And so, uh, yeah, we just kept putting ourselves in the batter's box and swinging away. So, you know, for us, the big, the big focus is, you know, why aren't there C3s and C4s? 
what is the problem? Why haven't we been able to accomplish this in the conservative movement, you know, at, at a more advanced rate? And I came to the realization very recently, you know, and when I say recently, I mean within the last five years, so the last four years, is that the RNC um, is an unwitting impediment to a lot of this. Because part of this is researching how the left was able to grow legs in this space so well. Right. Uh, you realize that the DNC effectively subjugated itself um, to these organizations and to ah. these donors. And so un until you have an RNC, until you have a Republican, and I, I won't say RNC, I'll say national Republican apparatus is the way I describe it. Fair enough. Because it's also, it's not just the RNC, it's also, you know, big time donors. And, you know, I, I would even, you know, there's some, there's some, um, expectation on like Trump shoulders, for example, as a guy running for president and former president. And then there's also your Mitch McConnell's and your Kevin McCarthy's, but not to get into too deeply into that. There's an, there's a necessary understanding that has to happen that the brain, AKA our data has to be made accessible for innovators to come in and start building the things that we need to build. So then they can go out and get the investment capital necessary to support those endeavors but if you if you cut off you know the main source of the viability of of an innovator being able to create something meaning like you know, effectively um you know it would be like the the open source you know like the left always talks about roads like roads you can't build a business without roads and yeah, tell uh, an extent they're they're right. You have to have a community. You have to have some shared resources that allow a community to exist and thrive. Like here in Arizona, it would have been possible if Teddy Roosevelt hadn't got behind building a dam here that would allow civilization to flourish within the desert. You have to have some of that, and and for us in this movement, that's data. And so, again, if that that's the piece that the left figured out so well. And the right still hasn't figured out. And upon further research and inspection, it's well, it's because the RNC is basically, and it's not again, the National Republican apparatus has effectively camped on that, monopolized it. And they've done the opposite of what the left's done. They've they've been very mafioso with the way that they've operated that space. That is uh pretty distressing, isn't it? <laughs> Well, it's distressing what? if you're, it, it's distressing if you are, you know, other people who have quit easier. Unfortunately for myself, I don't, I'm not a quitter. And <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so I, this is, your, you recognize that this is your task and, and you've got to do it. Yeah. I mean, I think that part of the reason why I'm on this earth at this time probably is to help solve this problem, but I'm not the only one. There's, it's, it's going to require an army of us to figure this out. You know, but, you know, it, like any grassroots movement, sometimes it starts with one or two or three or five people. And, you know, our good friend Harmeet Dillon is part of that group. You know, there's a, a, a I consider you part of that group. But why thank you. There, there are a number of individuals who have ascertained this problem and said, you know what, we've got to we've got to fix it. And again, that's not always an easy task, but and this one certainly is not. But I do think that a clear picture kind of lies ahead for us. And I think more people are becoming aware of what's going on.
So that's so that's that's a big deal because one of the things you know I said to you before we started recording was, I think people want to hear some good news for a change. Yep. And you know, like you said, uh, you know, being or maybe we did, where we're recording, being surrounded does have its advantages. But you, there's reason to believe that we're get we're we're getting there. We're 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 getting a sense of what has to be done and and how we can do it. Well, I think when you're punched in the face enough, you at, at some point tap out, you know, and you only have to, so many eyes that can be that can be made black. So, you know, I think after a couple of election cycles of getting punched in the face, I think people are finally going, oh, yeah, maybe this is right. And so but a lot of people I've rec- I realized they realize they're getting punched in the face, but they don't know how to prevent it. They don't know how to block it. They don't know what's the counterpunch. And I think that again, Tyler, I just, I, what you're saying is, is so many people ask me, they ask me in DMS, they ask me in replies to my tweets about challenges that we face. What can we do? What can we do? Mm -hmm. And I, you know, I'm not usually the guy with that answer. I'm I'm a simple country lawyer. I, I, I'm, (laughs) I'm not the, the political innovator, but people i think definitely do want to hear that there is something they can do and and that guys like you are doing it or and maybe have a place for them to help to help do it yeah i mean the frustrating part about where we're at right now in history i'll just lay it i'll I'll start with the frustrating part it's not the impossible part it's not it's not impossible nothing's impossible nothing is impossible but the frustrating part that the world that we're in right now is we're evolving and the republican party of old is you know, kind of on its last gasping breath here. And unfortunately, many of the people who have the keys to that movement are are not going to let go until they know that they're financially in a good place. I mean, I think that's a lot of part of it. And uh, aside from that, um, you know, they feel like they're leaving in in part the conservative movement um, back, putting it back together the way that they see it, which the second part of that is just like an impossible, it's a, it's an impossible thing. They, they're, they're under the belief that they, we can return back to this, um, you know, pre-Bush era, you know, Chamber of Commerce style run um, Republican Party. And, that, and that's gone. It's dead. It's it's never coming back. Um, there, there can be probably a new version of it that, that can maybe exist. Um, but it's, and so this is the, really the key problem with the, you know, the very geriatric, um, you know, handholding consultant class type politics that are out there. And so the unfortunate part is they're not great listeners. And the uh, more important, important part is that coming out of the Obama era with Eric Holder and the way that he's tried to manipulate our elections, we may not have the clock to just wait around for those people to move on and, and no. And, and pass away and so, so so that so that brings up an important point because you know i twitter is such an artificial universe but it is it's driving the dialogue to a large extent now yep what or at least it's driving the public appreciation of the dialogue yes and there are a lot of people who are genuine conservatives I'll be the judge who is a genuine conservative, right? We who all are very quick to point a finger at someone and say, Rhino, that guy's a rhino, that guy's a rhino. Yeah. Often people who have 
really legitimate conservative bona fides, like Ron DeSantis. I'll say that. Yeah. And I'm not talking about any particular political candidate who's saying it, I'm talking about rank and file, you know, hundreds and thousands of Twitter accounts who have, you know, Twitter users and, and Republicans and conservatives who are getting this message that someone who has really, I'm not pitching for Ron DeSantis here. I'm just saying, using this as, as a, it's astonishing to me how quickly the, the concept that somebody who is governor of Florida and they're, and then unsurprisingly, therefore has a relationship with the Bush family. Well, that makes him a rhino. Hello? How can we, is there a way back to civility and mutual, in other words, you've identified a real problem that I think everyone gets, that mm -hmm. there is an establishment within the Republican Party that isn't motivated by the need for change. And in fact, is motivated in the opposite direction and that we've got to work around it. But does that mean that everyone who has some relationship with the people who run the party for our entire lives has to be called out? Well, this could be a complex issue that we could discuss for an entire length of a podcast, but um... and it's right, and I'm giving you like three minutes, since believe it or not. <laughs> but I'd like to hear your 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 gut impression on on the answer to that. Yeah, I I mean I think the way that I look at it is just it's it's uh, the politics is very era driven, yeah, you know, and and the leaders ultimately decide the the makeup of the party. And so right now you're in the Trump era, whether you like it or not. And so the the fact and, and, and prior to that in the Republican Party, it was the Koch era. And prior to that it was the Bush era. Uh, you know, and I, I would argue you, you had a kind of a, a very small Tea Party era between the two. So you have you have a a you know, you have these eras of people and who's in charge is who's in charge and right now this is not the ron DeSantis era this is not the bush acolyte era there's there's that you know i actually think that ron is probably there's elements of ron that are the future of the party if he doesn't implode you know with that and so it's like how well, do you i mean work? the fact of the matter is he's being he's being challenged politically in a way that he never experienced before and this yeah, is I don't, know, I don't even know if he expected to be, to be honest with you. I think that there is an element here, which is, which is problematic again, just that, you know, those, those chapters have to be closed. The way, again, the way I look at it is that those chapters have to be closed and you have to move on. And, and that's what happened with the Cokes, the, the Coke chapter closed and the Trump chapter opened, you know, because as the Cokes were really struggling that's what enabled Trump to exist. He he had no help from anyone, uh, effectively, and he, <laughs> you know, winning the presidency, which you know, to the chagrin of many of those people. And so, you know, you have to find the right way in at the right time to kind of build a a movement. Uh, I'm not sure that challenging, you know, in the midst of maybe that continued movement. Is going to be successful i'm not saying that that means that he's wrong i'm just saying that i don't know if that's going to be this, the most successful use of of that talent uh to open up that next era now again i think a lot of people are like well what if trump gets indicted or what if you know trump has a heart attack from too much mcdonald's or what, whatever it is right like like we need a ron DeSantis, and i 
And I, I think there's an element of that, that, that truly exists with the Ron DeSantis team after talking with them and existing is like, Hey, we just know that like, we need, we're, we're here and we're not trying to like necessarily like punch Trump in the face and like throw things in his face, but like we're, we're here. And so I just think that it's, I don't, I don't know if they realize how much work it's going to be to court the, the, the Trump base to not self implode. So I don't know. It's going to be delicate. It's going to be, it's going to be delicate. And when you talk about rhinos, I mean, like the, again, the reality is that that's just a very subjective um, terminology. It's just as conservative is right. And right. that's kind of why I said like in your eyes and my eyes, conservative looks a lot different in Arizona, being a conservative looks a lot different than, you know, in New York and so, or in, in Florida. So it's, it's going to be different, very subjective everywhere. But what matters the most is this infrastructure piece that we were talking about, because at the end of the day, you know, I tell people this all the time. Now, it doesn't matter if it's Donald Trump or Ron DeSantis that's our nominee. The infrastructure is not built. And right now, both of them are going to get shellacked in this, this next election because they're not putting in the, the right material resources to ensure that they're going to win, which is horrifying. Like here in Arizona, we don't have a single RNC person hired. To my knowledge, not a single Trump person hired and not a single Ron DeSantis person hired. So how are you going to win a state that you must win effectively and statistically in order to win the presidency? Thanks for the good news. <laughs> well, the, the good news is this is what we're doing at Turning Point Action is recognizing this and trying to. And I've been working with the background and this isn't public information. We're not putting we're not disseminating this anywhere, but we're working with a number of C4s who are focused on this building the tech stack that's necessary in order to do the ballot chasing, which again, I, I don't know how much time we have left here, so I don't want to overrun you here, but. Um, You're the one, it's our guests that we accommodate. I'll, you know, I'm happy to go as long as you want. Well, I'll, I'll do this simply. I've been telling everybody, I mean, because obviously here in Arizona, we've been very focused on election integrity and how awful some of our Republicans and all the Democrats oh. are trying to manipulate the vote. And so, you know, not to get too into the weeds on that, what I've been telling everyone is like, look, defenses, you know, if you're a football fan, you know that defenses win Super Bowls, they win championships. And a good defense is your election integrity measures. You should do everything we possibly can to protect the Constitution of the United States and protect the way that we run our elections as we've run them for well over 100 years since we we, we left the the pub model for, for collecting ballots, right? So or collecting votes. So, you know, this is this is the way that it's been running for a long time since the Civil War. We've done a really good job at it across the United States. And then in the last 10 years, the left has tried to manipulate everything. And so you got to fix that. You got to defend that. That's number one. They, they win championships. But number two is your offense. You still have to put points on the board in order to win a Super Bowl. I don't care if it's one more point than the opposition. Right. Which is if you win the if you win the Super Bowl three. Well, look at the House of Representatives. That, yeah. that, you know, that that's winning by a field goal. That's winning by a field goal. It's winning by a, a one score game. It's winning by a safety, you know? So like literally, literally, I think we won by safety. We really did. We just, we won by an incidental accidental method this last, <laughs> this last election. But you know, you have to look at this and go, well, why are, why is the, why did the left spend $50 million on bodies that we're, we know now colloquially we're, we're chasing ballots door to door. 
Because it they works. Could just cheat, if they could just flip the machine. Now, don't get me wrong. There's manipulation happening at the ballot. But I, you know, I equiv- I, the equivalent that I put out there is 5 to 7%. They're manipulating vote. And they're doing this, we know, by, you know, by sending ballots to be to be adjudicated and setting ballots aside and they're chasing ballots and they're doing sure these things all take infrastructure but simultaneous to that they're spending 50 plus million dollars in arizona just on full-time sixty thousand dollar a year salaries embedding people into our community to go get that extra hundred ballots in those neighborhoods Wow, and that's the difference maker that the the right has to figure out, which we are doing at Turning Point Action now. Where right now we're focused exclusively on Arizona, Wisconsin, and Georgia, and going to donors and telling them this and telling them the story, showing them the difference. The good news is we're barely losing elections with doing zero of that. We're doing zero. We 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 are doing zero on the offense side. So, uh, you know, in that in that regard, and so I think with just a little bit of effort. You know, we're going to wipe the floors with the Democrats. Really, the challenge now is just explaining this to the donor class, that pre-existing donor class, that established class and establishment politicians and saying, look, if we if we choose not to do this, we're going to keep losing. And if we lose Idaho or Utah or Tennessee or Texas, you know, especially, especially Texas, then we're done for. No, but and the thing is, there's no... I think one people one thing people understand is that this is a ratchet effect. Mm-hmm. Democrats, when they get in office, change the rules, change the systems, and it's almost impossible to turn back the clock. Tyler, an incredible conversation. I cannot believe how fast this went. So much going on. Great talking to you. Great hanging out. Let's do it again sometime with more good news. And uh, uh- thank you so much for joining us. Well, my my thank you. My hope is that in the in the in the coming months here, we'll have a lot of that built and being built, and we're going to see a lot of the ground forces coming together. And so, we need you. We need everybody. Thank you for for all that you're doing and and being a voice of reason out there for the movement. You're welcome. Hey, thank you for listening to the Coleman Nation podcast. Don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. If you like the show, please rate it five stars and leave a review. For more information, please visit the show's website at coleman-nation.com. That's coleman-nation.com. Or you can visit my blog at likelihoodofconfusion.com. Join us next time on the Coleman Nation podcast and have a great day.